Okay. All right. We're live. Um, yeah, you, I, I find like, like I've been doing video and, and stuff for, I guess maybe 10 years now. And in the beginning, like when you see yourself in pictures, you see yourself in video, you you don't like it. You think you look gross. And I think part of it is just like you're seeing yourself in reverse. And so you're so accustomed to seeing yourself in the mirror that, that when you look at a video or whatever, you're actually seeing what you actually look like, not, yes. not the, the mirror you that you always see. And, but over time, the more and more you just watch it and watch it and watch it, you become accustomed to it. You don't see it as yourself, but you see it as another person that you're fine with because you become accustomed to the way that person looks. So it's almost like you're, you're learning to write with both your left hand and your right hand. You become sort of ambidextrous. You no longer become sort of disgusted by your reversed uh, image. Anyway, it's a, it, that's, that's what I feel. So the, the, the solution is like more watching yourself than on video. <laughs> anyway, so, but, so, so who are you? What do you do? Hi, um, I'm Dr. Joe Barstow. I am a research fellow at the Open University in the UK. And I look at the atmospheres of planets that orbit other stars when I am not parenting a almost five-year-old and a 10-month-old. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. Um, but, uh, and now they've moved out. I promise it gets better. Um, but so let's, let's talk about uh, exoplanet atmospheres. So how long have we been able to actually observe the atmospheres of an exoplanet? Probably, I guess, about the last decade. So we could get some very, very early hints um, about 10 years ago. Uh, but we were using um, mostly instruments in space, so instruments on Hubble, in a very non-optimized way mm -hmm. for doing that. Um, and if you look at some of... And, and we were also using um, the Spitzer spacecraft, which is fantastic, but uh, we lost the coolers on Spitzer quite soon after we, we worked out we could do that. Um, so that meant we lost access to some of Spitzer's um, spectroscopic instruments. And and so, sorry, apologies, but like that part of the spectrum, I guess Spitzer with its cooling was able to do far infrared. And is yes. that the key to being able to image the, the atmospheres? Um, no, we can do it in the near infrared as well. Um, we, we can we can do some some really good work in the visible too. We're not limited to the near, to the the far infrared. It was more that we lost the spectroscopic capability of Spitzer. So the real key to looking at the atmospheres is to get spectra rather than just measurements in sort of broadband um, without splitting up the different wavelengths, colors of light. Um, because what we're looking for are fingerprints of gases in the atmosphere that absorb particular wavelengths of light. Right. So you can only do that by splitting your light up into its constituent wavelengths and basically going, okay, well, which ones are which ones are missing in effect? Which ones are we not seeing as much light coming through? Right. And so just to, just to sort of understand this technique, right? You've got this the star. You know the chemical makeup of the atmosphere, I guess, of the star, and then you've got the planet that you passes in front. You know what, it doesn't actually matter that much. It okay. doesn't actually matter that much. It matters a bit, um, um, but you're looking at a difference measurement. So you can, you can say at least over the, over the time you're taking your observation, to, to first order anyway, the star doesn't really do anything. It doesn't change. Right. The star is the star is the star. Right. And what, we, we, what we're watching for is for the planets to pass in front of the star and block some of the starlight. And 
when that happens, okay, yeah, you've got a, a planet blocking a load of light, but you've got, if you imagine it as a, a very, very sort of thin shell of gas around the ice outside of the planet that's partially transparent. So that shell of gas is transparent to some wavelengths of light coming from the star, but in other wavelengths, it's actually still relatively opaque because you've got an absorber in the atmosphere. So let's say, for example, you've got a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere. Actually, most of the exoplanets we've looked at so far, we have detected water vapor mm -hmm, in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And water vapor has a bunch of absorption features in the near to mid-infrared, which is mostly what we've used to look so far. And so the planet will actually look like it's a little bit bigger in those wavelength regions compared oh. with um, its size just outside because you've got a bit more that's opaque. A the bit atmosphere. more of that shell is opaque, yeah. Wow. Uh, it's incredible. Um, and I mean, I know you can get a sense of of some of the chemicals that are present. But do you have any way to know the quantities or the ratios in the atmosphere? So yes, we can actually make some measurement of quantity. Um, the difficulty is it's not always possible to get absolute abundances, um, because you need to know what your what your baseline is, you need to know what your kind of perfectly transparent atmosphere looks like. And the minute you have something like a cloud layer in there, that becomes much more complicated because clouds are really, really good at being opaque across a huge range of wavelengths. I mean, we know that we're humans, we live on the earth, mm -hmm, the earth mm -hmm. has clouds, it, it blocks out a ton of light when it's a cloudy day, um, not just in one wavelength, but all the way across the visible and other wavelengths too. So if you have cloud, that complicates things because you, you lose your baseline. But we can usually do a reasonable job at least of getting the relative abundances of the gases that we're, we're measuring. So we could say if we had a measurement, say, of water vapor and of carbon monoxide, we could be reasonably confident about the relative abundances of those two. Getting the absolute is, is somewhat harder. But again, it's not impossible if we are able to to model the effects of something like a cloud deck and account for it, then we can we can really push for those absolute abundances as well. I mean, I think about like the the recent announcement and I guess controversy about the discovery of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. And that was a very tricky observation to make required some of the world's best telescopes on a planet that's just like right over there. And and whether or not this this chemical is actually present is still a bit of a discussion. And that's me putting it very politely. Um, <clears throat> and then the quantities is a bit of a discussion. And so when you're reaching out tens of light years away, are there limits, I guess, to what kinds of chemicals are, are possible to even be detected? Yeah, sure. And it depends on the planet. Um, it depends on the instrument you're using. Um, with James Webb having, thank goodness, successfully launched. Yes, um, everything's Christmas perfect. Day, yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, with James Webb, we will expect to be able to do a whole lot more. Um, that's for a couple of reasons, really. The first is that you know, it's got a much bigger mirror than Hubble. Mm -hmm. That just improves the sensitivity because it improves the number of photons that we, we're getting with each observation. But also, it has um, a much longer, a much wider wavelength range than Hubble in the infrared. We're going much further into the infrared. And what you have to think about when, when we're talking about gas fingerprints, we really are talking about fingerprints. We're not talking about this gas absorbs this one really specific wavelength and that's it. Mm -hmm. The issue 
you that, that you mentioned with the, the Venus measurement is that it is quite a narrow part of the spectrum that they're looking at. It's, it, you don't really have that breadth. Whereas with James Webb, we can observe many, many bands of water vapor absorption to take water as another example. And whilst if you were just observing one, then yeah, there might be potential for confusion with another molecule if that has an absorption feature in the same region. If you're looking at all of them, that pattern really is unique to water. It would right. be very difficult to mimic that with something else. Um, right, right. But I get, <clears throat> and so I just want to sort of understand this. Like, like obviously we could detect carbon dioxide on Venus all day, every day, yes. fairly easily, and other chemicals that are present, like sulfur oxide, you know, various things that are in the in the atmosphere of of Venus. And so, with something like James Webb, how does that give you more? precision in observing the atmosphere of, of, a, of an exoplanet. Do you mean relative to observe? Are you, are you comparing it with Venus or just or comparing it to Spitzer? Comparing it to Spitzer. Okay, yeah. well, I mean, Spitzer, I mean, the I guess discovery of, of exoplanets and well, the discovery that we could look at their atmospheres came along really in the last few years of mm -hmm. Spitzer's useful life. And yes, James Webb was designed before we knew we could do this as well. But the, the real beauty with James Webb is that even though it was designed a long time before, the sort of planning and commissioning and particularly things like the, the thinking about the noise, the modeling of systematics, that has taken place within the exoplanet era because that's taking place now. So we are much better equipped to use something like James Webb. Um, even Hubble. Um, whilst it's been an absolutely fantastic tool for, for exoplanets over the last few years, to start off with, it was very, very challenging because we didn't know what we had to do with those, with those instruments, with those data sets to get Hubble to give us those measurements. With James Webb, we're starting from a much, much better place. And also just having that increased sensitivity because the, the mirror is, is so much larger than Hubble's, that means just just that the photon noise, the, the, the scatter that you get um, just by, by chance from numbers of photons impacting your, your mirror, that's going to be smaller than it is for Hubble. Right. So it, we just get better precision. And having that wavelength range, it means you get more features for each gas. That makes it easier to disentangle them. So let's talk about building a spacecraft specifically designed to image the atmospheres of exoplanet. You're on the team working with the Ariel telescope, the Ariel mission. That's Can right, you talk yes. about this? So Ariel is actually going to be a pretty perfect sort of companion to James Webb. And actually now, of course, we think that James Webb might still be operational when Ariel launches, which uh, we weren't planning for initially. But because of the launch being so successful, we now know we might get a few more years out of James Webb, which is really exciting. So Ariel actually covers a very similar wavelength region to James Webb. It's a little bit reduced from the full James Webb range. Um, and that's simply because that is the best wavelength region if we want to look at exoplanet atmospheres. It gives us the option to look for some of the reflected starlight, um, as well as perhaps emission, thermal emission from the planet itself. It gives us a bit of a handle on, on whether there are clouds there, and it gives us access to the molecules that we're interested in looking at. Um, so that's great. Now, Ariel, it's a, it's a medium-class mission for the European Space Agency. It is not um, a decades-long project with collaborations from NASA and ESA and the Canadian Space Agency 
Um, it is not the next big space observatory. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not as big as James Webb. It doesn't have such a big mirror. It's more similar in size to Hubble. It is going to the same point, same region of space as James Webb. It's going to be um, at L2, which is important for an infrared telescope um, because it's thermally stable out there. Um, it's easy to keep something um, that needs to observe in the infrared cool and at a stable temperature. Um, but what Ariel is, it's not going to do um, a single planet to the same level of detail as James Webb is capable of. Right. And the main reason for that is just the mirror size. James Webb is, is huge yeah. compared with Ariel. What Ariel is going to do is do a survey. It's going to give us the first survey of lots and lots of different exoplanet atmospheres. Um, so at the moment, we've got good atmospheric data for maybe a few tens of planets and some atmospheric information for a bunch more, but not so much. With Ariel, we're looking at getting spectra of a thousand of these mm. things. And James Webb, as, as great as it is, is also not going to be able to achieve that simply because James Webb is a general purpose observatory. Right. We have to compete for time on James Webb. Uh, it would be lovely if we could just have all of the time on James Webb computers, <laughs> but, but, we, <laughs> but the cosmologists uh, might have something to say about that and extragalactic observers might have something to say about that. So, um, yeah. yeah. So Ariel, Ariel, think of Ariel as, um, Ariel is the Kepler or TESS for atmospheres, if that makes sense. It's going to give us statistics on the population rather than looking at a lot of individuals in detail. And, and it really does feel like now with the number of planets, like we're just about to hit 5,000 confirmed exoplanets, thousands more candidates that we're shifting. And, you know, like if someone tells me that, that, that a new planet has been discovered, we don't report on it on Universe Today unless it's something really interesting. Like it feel, I feel sad. I mean, I want to, I want to tell the amazing news of every new planet that ever gets discovered, but we don't have time and resources to do that anymore. But we're shifting into this world of large numbers now, where we have thousands of planets, and we can start to make these these larger surveys of the field in general. But with the atmospheres, they're all still each one is its own precious little butterfly. But we're shifting into, with Ariel, hundreds, thousands, potentially, of exoplanet atmosphere detections, again, shifting into this larger survey. What do you, what are you hoping to discover as you, you know, compare a thousand exoplanet atmospheres against each other? I think what we're really hoping to learn is, is more about fundamentally how planets evolve and how their atmospheres work. At the moment, we're looking at objects in isolation, and that tells you, you know, a certain amount. It tells you a lot of the time that you have a really cool and interesting planet. But often we are, we, ha we have a standpoint where we we have some some models, perhaps some chemical models of what we expect the atmosphere to be like, maybe a circulation model of how you expect it to behave, and sometimes it's great we have the observation and we think, oh yeah, that all checks out, really nice. It's what we expected, but more often than not, it's not exactly what we expect. Right. And it's quite challenging just from a single object to really get a handle on why that is. Why was our original assumption incorrect for this planet? If we have a bunch more planets that are roughly in the same temperature regime, so we expect them all to behave roughly the same way, and we have some that agree quite nicely with our models, and then we have another population that don't, then we can start to really look into that and say, okay, what's the difference? What's special about this bunch of exoplanets compared with this one? 
and that just enables us to get to get down to solving this mystery really of why our initial assumptions are not quite right and okay now so we've we've determined that for some of these objects our models are not doing a particularly good job what do we have to put into them to make them do a better job and that's when we start to really understand a bit more about how these atmospheres work. For example, how important is the type of star that these planets orbit? Does that make a, a fundamental difference beyond just how hot the star is and how much light the planet's getting? Does that make a really fundamental difference to how the atmosphere behaves, to what chemicals are present? And, and I, I wonder as well, I mean, being able to make observations over time, being able to come back and look at the same atmosphere again and again and again, maybe at, at you know, at aphelion, at perihelion, like at different times of its of its orbit, maybe you can get some better sense of how the atmosphere changes, maybe seasons, things like that. Well, a, a lot of the planets that we're looking at using this method, um, they don't really have seasons the way that we would think of seasons because their orbits are very, very short. Mm -hmm. So, and they're also, and they're, they're tidally locked. Um, so what we have is a situation where one side of the planet is being permanently blasted and cooked. The other side of it is just radiating out into space. And you say, you know, we can go back and observe it at perihelion, aphelion. Well, actually we're, we're doing that within a few days for several of these planets because right. we're, we're watching, we're watching a single orbit over the, over the period yeah. of about, you know, yeah, a few days. Yeah, five um, hours later. Five days. Maybe not quite so quick, but yeah, um, sort of five to 10 days is very common. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so when we're doing that, we, we're effective. We are effectively, yeah, we're, we're seeing a year, but <laughs> it's such a short year. The yeah. timescales are completely different um, to what we're thinking about on Earth. But what is interesting is that we would love to, certainly for the planets that we've been able to characterize quite well already, it's going to be really fascinating to revisit those objects with James Webb and then you know, a few years later, again, with Ariel, because we don't know that these things just sit there and don't change on a timescale of several exoplanet years, or even several Earth years, they may well change. And we have seen evidence for some of these objects that they do change over over scales of a few orbits. Um, I worked hmm. on a paper a couple of years ago on a planet called HAP-P7b, um, where we were looking at this this what we call the phase curve, where we're looking at the planet over a whole orbit and we're seeing how the amount of light coming from the planet changes. And the brightest point of that orbit shifted slightly hmm. over successive orbits. So sometimes it was just before the planet was eclipsed by the star and sometimes it was just after. And that was something that was really not expected at all. And we're still not really sure exactly why that happens, but that was, you know, that was really interesting. And so we did that um, using data from the Kepler spacecraft. So that was just you know, a single broadband, um, no spectroscopy. We were just looking at the integrated brightness over the Kepler band pass. Imagine being able to do that with a spectroscopic instrument. That would be really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you talk about these planets and they're, and they're fairly extreme from our perspective. Planets that, that don't exist in the solar system. Uh, a planet that goes around its star every couple of days. They're tidally locked. They're incredibly hot on the front side and still pretty hot on the back side. Raining, iron, etc. Um, but obviously, I mean, I think for us as very Earth-centric uh, humanity, we're looking for planets that are more like Earth, we're looking for planets that are maybe farther away from the star more in the habitable zone. What, how, 
how able will Ariel be to be able to observe those kinds of planets, assuming they've been discovered by tests and other missions? So we already have a bunch of planets that sit in the habitable zone of their star. Um, by habitable zone, we mean, do we think there's liquid water on the surface? Is the temperature right? Yes. Um, and so the difference is that those planets orbit much smaller stars. Right. Um, and that's the constraint here really is if we're observing something that transits, it's much easier to detect something that transits once every 20 days, maybe, than once every year or a year and a half. So to look for Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars is, is quite a bit more challenging. And if you find one of those, you've also then got to be very, very lucky in terms of going back and observing it with um, a spectroscopic instrument because you've got one transit a year. <laughs> The right. scheduling becomes much more tricky. Yeah. Um, so there is another spacecraft that's launching over the next few years called Plato. That's actually going to look for Earth-sized planets around sun-like stars in the habitable zone. So that mission is, again, more like Kepler, more like TESS. It's not a characterization mission. It's a planet-finding mission. Right. But that will give us that population of planets. Um, the they, they will be more challenging to follow up, but Ariel's certainly capable... Um, of going after some of those planets we already know about, um, not to the same you know, precision as we could go after um, a really hot Jupiter, um, just because the signals are bigger, but we can certainly look at those. And, you know, um, if we do find a promising Earth-Sun analogue candidate, we'll certainly be looking at all the ways we could possibly observe it. Yeah, you're, and I guess right now you're looking for, I mean, because of the way just the the trigonometry works out, if the planet is farther away from its star, the chances of it passing directly in front and doing that transit is is much lower than a yeah. than a planet that is just a a few million kilometers away from its red dwarf star. But those are the ones that are that are most interesting. And I guess the the next big revolution is going to be the direct imaging method. And so, if you're attempting to direct image the atmosphere of an exoplanet. How much more difficult is that than than the current technology that we have available? Is there anything on the horizon that will let you try and start to just look at those planets directly? Well, again, it depends which planets. If you're talking about Earths around yeah, Suns, Earths. Then, then yeah, that, that's really challenging. We haven't got anything yet that will let us do that. Um, there are certainly concepts in the pipeline that might let us do that. Um, some of them, um, some of them that have been um, proposed previously um, are not necessarily going to, to fly, but the concepts are there. So the main thing that you need if you're going to directly image something like this is you need to get rid of the starlight because right. you have a, a big bright thing. And okay, yes, it might be one astronomical unit away, but in terms of how it looks on the sky to us, it's still very, very close to a tiny faint thing and you want to see the tiny faint thing. So you need to somehow remove the signal from the star and the way that that's um, often done so on a ground-based telescope you'd, you'd use something called a coronagraph um, so you have basically a physical stop in the optics of the telescope in the center of your image which is centered on the star and it removes that bright central part of the image then you have another mask within the optics of your telescope that gets rid of the diffracted bits of light from the edge of your original stop because obviously if you shine light past a sharp edge you get diffraction and that's messy you want to get rid of that as well 
Um, and then hopefully you you have an image that when cleaned up has a, you know, a bit of a bit of muck, if you like, a mucky light left over in the middle that is still from the star because you can't get rid of it completely. But somewhere in that noise, in those speckles, you, you should see a planet. That can be done already from the ground right. um, for Jupiter-sized things that are young and therefore still warm and therefore bright. Like the sphere instrument done... on the on ESO. Yeah, so sphere is, is one of those. The Gemini planet imager is another one of those. Right. Um, and we've we've had some really fantastic data sets come, come from those in recent years. Um, if you want to do it for an Earth around a sun, that's quite a bit harder. And the, the concept that probably has the most traction in terms of actually being able to do it in terms of the imaging, but is probably going to be technologically very difficult to pull off, is to have effectively a coronagraph in space where you have a, a star shade satellite. So you'd actually have two separate um, set parts to your observatory. You'd have the star shade and you'd have your telescope. And the star shade would serve um, the function of the, of the stop in your telescope optics right. in, a, in a normal coronagraph. And you'd need to do it in space because you would you would need that precision. You you don't want any interference from the atmosphere, um, and you would also need um, it to be a big, a big telescope, a big mirror, and probably a big stop. Now that's really really difficult to do because you're going to have to then fly these two things in formation. And the, the bit that always puzzles me when people suggest this, and I really don't know how you get around this, is depending on the distance apart that these two spacecraft would have to be, you might have to wait a really long time yeah. for it to orient to look at your target because sure, the, the telescope bit just has to go around like this and find it's looking that way, but your star shade has to travel quite a long way right. before it's in the right position. Um, so there are quite a lot of engineering challenges, but it's a, it's a really, really cool concept. If, if we could find a way to pull it off, maybe, I don't know, maybe you have a cluster of star shades rather than just one, and that gets rid of some of the problems. There was an um, idea that I heard uh, about, you could actually use a star shade, there's various orbits around the Earth that you could sort of reach that same distance and use the star shade with Earth-based telescopes. You could actually pair up a star yeah. shade with the extremely large telescope which will be coming online, I guess, in, in 2026, yeah. and make a few observations a year when you get that perfect alignment until your spacecraft, until your starshade runs out of propellant. And then because it's 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 having to do all the work because yeah, Earth isn't going to help. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of I mean, you can imagine more and more of these starshades out there. I mean, they, they kind of do have to be paired quite uniquely with the telescope the distances have yeah. to be perfect so it's not like you can have you can have multiple star shades working for one telescope but you can't have multiple star shades working for multiple telescopes unless everything is working out perfectly it sounds it sounds yeah, complicated I think it's, the engine yeah. the engineering is, is very very challenging but then having said that you know we we just we just threw james webb up into space <laughs> and got the star and the star shade deployed and the mirror yeah, yeah. i mean all these things that I think a, a lot of us um, were really quite scared about, you know, having seen the deployment video and thinking, oh, goodness, how many single point failures are there in this yeah. one bit of deployment that will mean it just doesn't work as planned. And it's just been perfect. So, you know. Yeah, I, I, I feel pretty hopeful. Like I watched like the development from, say, LIGO and the each time they turn the, tele, the, the instrument off and then do a bunch of upgrades and bring it back online. Now it's got a sensitivity by a factor of 10 and then they do a little more work and then they add another observation. So I mean, again, I'm not an expert, but it but it feels to me like 
like the pathway is probably coronagraphs, better, bigger, powerful, more powerful coronagraphs matched with bigger, more powerful Earth based telescopes where you can tinker with it, pull it apart, add new technology, put it back in. I love the Starsheet idea, but it feels yeah. really fiddly to use a British term. Yeah. yeah. So, so it seems it seems like, tricky, like, like tricky work. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, now we're going to get to the kind of the meat of this. And that is obviously, you know, we're speculating far into the future. But we're all excited about the possibility for finding life out there in the universe. And it feels like characterizing exoplanet atmospheres is the most is like the strongest path to us being able to detect some kind of evidence of biological activity on another planet. What and there's got to be you've got to be thinking about this already. What would you be looking for to say, okay, there could be life there? So the most important thing can be summed up in one word, and that is disequilibrium. So we're looking for stuff that isn't right, in effect. We're looking for stuff that shouldn't be there in the way it is there, based on everything that we know so far about this planet, about the way chemicals behave. And that's, you know, that's the least sort of restrictive way that we can think about this problem. Because sure, we could say we're going to look for oxygen fine but two things about that one how on earth can we be so sure that any life out there is going to need oxygen the way that we do i mean fair, there's a fair percentage of life on earth that doesn't need oxygen the way that we do so that seems a little arrogant and human centric and also there are plenty of oxygen false positives out there there are loads of ways you can make oxygen more oxygen than you think you ought to have on a planet without life being there mm -hmm. yeah um so yeah, the, the, the obvious way is you have a planet with lots of water, you have a runaway greenhouse, so you heat it up just enough that the water in the oceans evaporates, so you get a lot of water in your atmosphere, and gradually that water will start to break down into hydrogen and oxygen. And because hydrogen is much lighter and zippier than oxygen, the hydrogen disappears quite quickly, but the oxygen hangs around. So if you look at a planet that's undergone that runaway greenhouse and you look at it at exactly the right or wrong time, depending on your viewpoint, you see a planet with a huge oxygen signature in its atmosphere. Right. And it's nothing to do with life at all. Right, um, right. It's just one of those things. It's just chance. So and that, that problem is, you know, it's fairly common to any single gas you could think of to look for. Methane. Carbon dioxide, Methane, lo loads ozone. Of, yeah, exactly. You can pick any one of those. And yes, sure, absolutely. Um, methane could be um, a signature of life, could be a biosignature. Ozone could be a biosignature. Could be plenty of other things too. So looking for one gas is not a winning strategy. What you want to look for are combinations of gases that shouldn't exist together in the way that they do. So the example you could take for Earth is that the oxygen and methane ratios on Earth are not what you would expect for a planet that doesn't have something driving that, that system out of equilibrium. So if, if um, very dark here, if something wiped out all life on Earth instantly, right now, gradually the oxygen in our atmosphere would react with other stuff, including some of that methane, and without something, without us, without us being when plant life being here to release oxygen, release methane back into the atmosphere, 
the abundances would change gradually mm. and it wouldn't return to the state that it's in now. The reason that it's been like this for so long and that it's stable is that you've got living things, you have plants and continually releasing oxygen, you have bacteria and cows and yes, humans releasing methane um, and you're maintaining that state of disequilibrium, that out of perfect chemical balance scenario. So you want to look for something like that. And it might not be the same combination of gases for another planet. It hmm. just needs to be gases that look a bit out of whack for what we would expect. Right. And I mean, and that's going to bear further investigation. And I think, you know, the discovery of methane in the atmosphere of, of Mars was quite an exciting discovery. And again, we have been arguing, like planetary scientists have been arguing about whether or not that's an indication of life or outgassing from volcanoes for 15 years now. And Mars, again, yeah. is right there. We've got robots on the surface, spacecraft orbiting around the, the planet. And yet you put 20 planetary scientists in a room and say, does this indicate there's life on Mars? They're going to come out of it just still arguing. And yeah. and it's right there. And again, back to the phosphine discovery of, of Venus. And I think that I mean, I've definitely got the impression that this is a much trickier challenge than than I think we expected and are now discovering just the that this is just the tip of the iceberg and how complicated this is. So yeah, sure. And you know, I said, I said, burst further investigation, I, I would step way back from saying that if we found that we would immediately, yeah, you know, jump onto our nearest television and radio contact and go, yes, we've discovered life on this planet. Absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. That would be really, really irresponsible. Um, and and just not not accurate. So, you know, we, the, the burden of proof for actually discovering a possibly inhabited planet is abs is going to be enormous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I think I think that the the field will will absolutely hold any such attempt at that discovery to a really, really high standard as it should do. Um, we are going to we need to be absolutely sure about this. And, you know, I think that the, the phosphine detection on Venus is a really good example of the machine working, actually, mm -hmm. and working very, very well. Um, the scientists who made the discovery, they did so, um, you know, with a really careful analysis of the data that they had to hand. They put it out there as a hypothesis. They didn't make a claim that they had discovered yep. life. And other scientists said, actually, we disagree with this. We think that this is a better explanation. They pushed back and they're going back and forth with it now. Um, and that's exactly how this should work. And there's three missions going to Venus now, potentially yeah. with instruments on board that will try to push the evidence one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, and that, that is, as, as somebody who started out, you know, academic life as a Venusian, I did my PhD on Venus, that is just, that is the best news, because Venus, I think, is, is a really neglected planet in many ways. Um, I think, I think, personally, it's way more interesting than Mars. Um, and it thoroughly deserves to have three missions going to, to observe it over the next few years. But no mission to Triton or Io. That was the that was the price. That was the terrible price that we had. to pay. Yeah, I mean, you, you, if only you could have them all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So then I guess what I mean, based on your work from Venus, what do you think that I mean, just how different Venus is from the Earth? Do you think that gives us any clues 
into maybe searching for biological signatures or just the differences of exoplanets out there? It's mainly the, the fact that they're so different that's exciting. And, and one of the things that I, I, I'm really excited about, actually, at being able to push the envelope down to looking at terrestrial planets more and sort of more temperate terrestrial planets is actually I'm almost more excited about finding all those exo-venuses out there because there will be some. Hmm. And working out what happened to them and, and seeing if they can provide us with a sort of more definitive answer in a way as to why Venus did end up so sort of tragically inhospitable compared with how we might have expected it to be. And so that's one of the really interesting questions that I think we, we need exoplanets to answer because we, we can't go back in time and look at our solar system and say, say what went wrong, but we can look at the population of planets out there and say, well, how many of them ended up like this and what were the circumstances and do what happened to the other planets in those systems? I mean, the TRAPPIST-1 system is going to be a really fascinating system mm -hmm. to look at for that reason, because we've got planets that sit in the Earth temperature regime. We have planets also that sit in the Venus temperature regime. And so we have a, an analog multi-planet system that has Venus, Venuses, mm -hmm. possibly, possibly Earths, um, just based on temperature. And we can really hopefully over the next few years get um, get into the data for those and look and see whether we get that same divide in that system as we do in, in our solar system and the trappist one planets are definitely on james webb's oh, observing yes. run this yes. year right like it's one of the first targets it's going to be observing yes um some of them will be observed right in the first cycle um yeah. so we're expecting data yeah um, and and right now, I mean, do we have any data on their atmospheres from previous observations? We do, um, but with, it's very, very challenging to do with Hubble because the signals are small. So what we can effectively do is exclude them having really fluffy hydrogen-dominated atmospheres, which, to be honest, we didn't expect anyway, but it's nice to know that they don't. Um, and that's about as far as we're able to go, really. Um, we, we can have hints of other things, but... It really needs something um, as powerful as James Webb to to get a better handle on that. And and you think that from James Webb, I mean, what do you think you'll you will find? That's a really good question. No, I actually I don't know. I've I've done some modeling work to see what it would look like if it if you did have an Earth like atmosphere. So if if we are fortunate enough to get something that really is Earth-like, you'll see a lovely ozone feature, hmm. or you should do. And so that will be really nice. But there are so many possibilities. Um, and I don't think we've adequately explored anything like enough at the moment. But it is, it is interesting because with the Trappist, you've got, what, six planets? Seven. Seven planets at, at varying ranges. Like, you almost couldn't get a more perfect science experiment to examine a very close one, then one's a little farther, and then one's a little farther, all the way out from too hot to too cold, and in the habitable zone. Yeah, it, it is an absolutely fascinating system. And I can't wait, I can't wait to see what it's going to tell us. I, I'm really hoping for a, a Venus C1 in there in the mix, a CO2 dominated atmosphere, 
I yeah. think that would be really fascinating. Now, you came across my radar like this week because you actually wrote a piece on the conversation about Rogue Planets, um, which I know isn't your specialty, but but I guess you had something to, to say. So can you just talk a bit about what your sort of what idea you were presenting with your with your article? So um, I was effectively acting as a journalist for them. I was I was covering um, the work of um, Nuria uh, Mire Roig, I think is how you'd say her name. I apologize if I've got that wrong. Um, and her colleagues who presented a really fascinating result just before Christmas, um, where they had found um, a population of these objects um, in a particular region of space. They'd done that by going back and looking at data from a huge number of, um, of surveys, including Gaia, and measuring the positions of the objects and pinning down which ones they thought were objects of planet mass within um, this, this um, association of stars. And the really fascinating outcome of that was that based on what we understand so far about how these objects might form, there were too many there for them to have just formed in the same way as a, as a failed star might have done. So just by a, a, a bit of the, the dust and gas um, in a nebula collapsing in on itself, and which is exactly how you know, stars and brown dwarfs form. But in this case, we think perhaps they just don't get quite big enough to start um, burning either hydrogen or deuterium. So they just sit there as planet mass objects and float around by themselves. That's one way that we think these objects could form. But this paper demonstrated that there are too many in that region of space to fit in with models of the way we think that stars and these objects would form. So they can't have just started out life that way. Quite a lot of them, maybe as many as half of them, must have started out life actually as planets as we think of them more frequently, planets that orbited a star, but they got kicked out of their systems at some point early on, early on in the evolution of that planetary system. So I think that's really the first handle we've got on, on how common some of these processes might be. And I found that really interesting, particularly it's, it's really interesting to, to think about. I mean, we know that um, there were probably more planetesimals, baby planets in the solar system than the ones that we, we got left with at this point. Um, and some of them, while things were dynamically interesting early on, and particularly Jupiter was spending quite a lot of time moving closer to the sun, and then it moved back out again, and it probably kicked a few objects um, out into interstellar space. Maybe some of them that would be big enough to be detected like this, we, we just don't know. So I think that's really, that's really fascinating. It gives us a bit more of a, a handle on perhaps how common the evolution of our own solar system would have been, and maybe gives us a hint as to what might have gone on there too. Yeah, you really get a sense. I mean, again, like we're seeing all of these different threads coming together where we're seeing with say the sphere instrument we talked about earlier that we're seeing new planets forming around young stars and with say, um, the very large array, no, with the um, uh, Alma, we're seeing like the protoplanetary disks and the different shapes that they take and, and how these planets are clearing out their their orbits. And and we're learning more about the late heavy bombardment period here in the in the solar system and when a lot of this mayhem was going on. And it feels like there was a lot more solar system here in the beginning and a lot of collisions and 
and migrations went on with things getting kicked out into space. And now you're seeing perhaps this is this is really solid evidence that that a lot of planets get the boot early on yeah. in the in the in the formation. So then let's put your atmosphere hat back on. Um, do these do these rogue planets offer us any way to get a better sense of, of atmospheres? Again, is there some way to observe them some way to characterize them? Well, yeah, I mean, if, if you have a, a spectrograph that's, that's optimized for the right wavelength range, because these things are very, very cold. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they've they've been sitting there and cooling down for a long time, most of them. So yeah, we're looking at objects that some of them may have temperatures not dissimilar to to Jupiter's. Um, some of them will be a little bit warmer, depending on how big they are and how long they've been there cooling down. But if you if you have an object that's not got too cold yet, um, then there's no reason why you couldn't observe it with something like James Webb and get a spectrum in exactly the same way you would a, a cool brown dwarf. And uh, it's the, the real challenge is just how cold these things are. Right, right. But then you think about things like, say, the you know, if you have a Jupiter and you have potentially moons going around this Jupiter, and if they're having tidal interactions, they could potentially be warmer, maybe even warmer to the point that you've got liquid water on their surface. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure if anyone I've ever heard anyone come up with the idea of a free floating planet with moons. But yeah, that would uh, well, be you should cool. uh, why well, you should talk to Alex Tichy and uh, Oh, yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm, I know they the look exo at exomoons. Moon. Yeah, talk to the exomoon people. Yeah, I didn't realize they'd looked at exomoons around free floating but that would make a lot of sense. It's well, I mean, they haven't that. necessarily found them. But but we've definitely no. talked about it as a as an idea. And, um, and I think that that there's this other idea as well, you talked about this hydrogen dominated atmosphere, and that that has the potential to keep a planet warmer and have liquid water on the surface yeah. as as well. And you can sort of combine all these pieces together. I mean, I do love the idea that potentially these worlds are closer potentially a couple of light years away, you know, they could be splitting the difference between us and Alpha Centauri. They are yeah. not going around a star. And so you don't have to worry about observing the brightness of the star having to remove the star. And as you say, you know, possible within the realm of something like James Webb, or maybe another far infrared telescope. And there's sort of an interesting opportunity for us to observe the atmospheres of worlds, of course, not going around a star, you're gonna have a different atmospheric dynamic than one that is that is going around a star. Um, so what would you you know, you you mentioned briefly, you know, you talked about a, a, a spacecraft that was going to be following uh, you talked about essentially the decadal survey and the fact that Louvoir, um, Habex, Origins are all getting sort of put into the blender and a smaller mm -hmm. version is probably going to be, be coming out. From your perspective, I mean, Ariel sounds amazing. Uh, it sounds like it's a really great step forward. What would be your ideal instrument for for being able to really get the kind of data to help make some serious progress in this in this field, which, which I think is one of the most important fields possible, like we're charting the future of Earth's atmosphere, we're trying to figure out how Venus went so wrong. And this is possibly the most mm. powerful way of finding life out out there in the Milky Way. So, so open check, uh, what is the mission that would really make some progress for you? 
That's a really difficult one to answer because there are there are so many different ways that we could do this, as you've pointed out, and I think they've all they've all got merits to them. Just purely personally, because it's more related to what I work on, I loved um, the Louvre concept, mm -hmm. and the, one of the reasons that I I loved it is because it got you ultraviolet as well. Yes, and that is something that is sort of you know particularly. Touch, touching all the wood when Hubble does eventually come to the end of its life, which we hope is not going to be for a good long time, but we know is inevitable at some point, we will lose a lot of ultraviolet capability in space. And that, that to me is a big problem, not just for, for this field, but for, for many. P particularly for me, um, one of the things that I'm really interested in actually um, are the clouds on these objects. Um, so. To, 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 many, to many people, they're just a problem to get rid of. I actually would quite like to find out more about them. And the ultraviolet is pretty key for, for that because it allows us to look at um, the, the slope, if you like, um, from the ultraviolet through to the visible of how, um, how much the planet's atmosphere is absorbing and scattering going through from the ultraviolet to the visible. You get them, rather than having sort of spikes and bumps, you, will get sort of a very broad underlying feature hmm. um, because if you've got small because as you go to shorter wavelengths the particles will scatter more light if you've yep. got little things like clouds in the atmosphere but the way that that slope works so if it's very very steep that tells you you've got lots of tiny tiny particles if it's much sort of flatter that tells you you've probably got particles that are fairly similar in size to the wavelength of the light you're using to look at it so that slope can tell us actually quite a lot about what clouds might be there and that's one of the things that um, I think is really, really valuable. The other thing about having ultraviolet capability is it might tell you something about um, the star itself. It might tell you more about whether the star is, is particularly spotty. Um, so right at the beginning, um, I said, the star just stays the same and it doesn't really matter what the star's doing because you're taking a difference measurement. That's true up to a point and the point where it starts to become not true is when you worry about the fact that stars are not uniform disks they have spots and they have faculae um, so spots are dark regions faculae are bright regions and you know if you picture you have a planet crossing this disk the minute you have a planet taking a bite out of some of the disk you have to worry about whether that bit of the disk is representative <laughs> of the whole or not and it's right. not it's never going to be because you don't have a, a star that has perfectly scattered spots and faculae everywhere uniformly. You often have regions that are spottier than others. And so, the, and then you have to start worrying about that. And we are getting to the point now where we are worrying about it quite a lot. And we're starting to see if we can disentangle the effects from the star, from the, the planetary atmosphere signals that we're looking for from the observations directly. And the ultraviolet is really, really, really useful for doing that. And and a big because telescope like Louvar would would let you start to get more resolution on the star itself. Yes, of course. Right. And James Webb, as great as James Webb is going to be, um, it doesn't have that because it starts from just the very red end of visible. So that's why I really like the fact that Louvar is is in the mix there, and I'm I'm really pleased that it's there. I think it's very very important. Um, that, but that's that's very much from you know the perspective of somebody who spent the last ten years looking at transiting exoplanets. That's what I know, and that's what I enjoy doing. If you really want to find an Earth analog, 
and get unambiguous signals, then you need to be looking at direct imaging yeah. one way or another. Um, you need to be getting rid of the star entirely. Um, right. And also just because of the separation. So it depends what you want to do, look at, really. If you, if like me, you actually quite enjoy weird, wonderful, hot Jupiters and, and finding out what's going on with those, then Louvre is fantastic. Right. And Earth-sized worlds, be a better coronagraph. Yeah, I think we, we have to be looking at something at something like that. Um, I right. don't really see another way of doing that. Um, so Louvre, so your so your request for the twenty thirty decadal survey is a twenty meter Louvre with a star shade. Yeah, sure. I mean, why not? Yeah, yeah. All right, I'll <laughs> I'll uh, I'll pass along that that recommendation. You did say blank check. <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, I'm. It's we're funding it. To, we're funding it as you speak. Um, well, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. If people want to follow your work, and sort of find out what you're up to, what's the best place to do that? Um, so I'm fairly active on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Dr. Jovian, as in Jovian Planet. Um, all one word. So please do look me up on Twitter. Yep. I'm very happy to answer questions over Twitter. Um, as I mentioned, I'm at the Open University, um, so I have an institutional website there. Um, and I'm Joe Barstow. I have most of my work on archive. If you're really interested in reading papers, you can go and find me there. Too. Yeah, the the link that I that I put in your in the show notes goes to your, uh, I guess, on the Open University, and that links to all yeah. of your papers. Yeah. I, I love it. That's that's it. That's your bio. Your bio is just a link to all your papers, which I think is, which that's I think not is right. Yeah, it's, I need to check out that. Well, I, I'm pretty I think sure it's, it's not I think it's that. a bold move. I think it's a <laughs> because in the in in your field, just whatever you've published is is kind of what matters. So I think that's. I'm really uh, sure that's not what it's meant to be. I've been on maternity leave for the last ten months. I've literally been back at my desk for two weeks. So that you've just given me something else to put on. Oh, my Oh sure, yeah. Then, then check out, out right then now. Check out your bio on Open University. But I'm telling <laughs> you, I think it's a power move. <laughs> All right, yeah. Dr. Varso, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Good luck. Uh, if you do yeah, find a uh, another Earth, let us know. Thank you. All Bye. right. Take care.